Okay, here we go. That's good. You got to, uh, like, that, like that sermon this morning, you got to talk it all out, and then before you can be quiet, you got to talk it all out, right? So that's good, you know? Most churches have to hire a consultant and pay $25,000 to figure out how to get you to talk like that, but you just saved yourself a bunch of money. Congratulations. All right? There you go. Way to go. Okay, let's, uh, let's pray. Transfiguration, great day in the church. This is the threshold of going into Lent. Ashes on Wednesday. Don't forget, you know, come along. It's good for you. Here we go. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Very fascinating that that, in fact, is appointed for the text today, given what we're doing. So if you want to know light, if you want to know God, you look at Christ's face. Christ our God, who was transfigured on the mountain, and manifested your glory to your disciples as they were able to bear it, shed forth your everlasting light on us, your servants, that we behold your glory and enter into your sufferings and proclaim you to the world, O you who gives light in the darkness and are yourself the light of man, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, tons of stuff to do today. I don't know how far we'll get. There's so much to do. Um, Do you get the Wall Street Journal on Saturday? We're suing them because um, this is the front page of the personal section, page four. Two pages, full page. This side and this side. This is our Bible study and map from last year. If you get the Wall Street Journal, you've got to read this. It's unbelievable. Let me read you the very first line. One of the losses that modern society feels most keenly is the loss of a sense of community. You want me to keep going and read to you about beauty and about spirituality? I, this is unbelievable. So, you know, it's nice to know that you're a year ahead, but as I've, you know, as a venture capitalist once said, to be early and to be wrong are exactly the same thing. So, um, you know, uh, it's called Religion for Everyone. So basically what this guy does, it, it's coming out in a book, this is excerpt from a book, but it's unbelievable. It's the entire front page and the entire second page. Nobody ever gets that much space. So he basically says... Religion has all these cool things that make it work. Beautiful things, um, community, uh, uh, you know, um, justice things, and spirituality. So he basically says, what we need to do is have all those things without the spirituality. But then by the end he's saying, we need to rewrite this thing called the Book of Agape. So he basically, he can't stop himself from talking about divine love... So he basically says, what, what we need to do in America is recreate all the things that churches have without churches. It's genius. I mean, if you want to understand postmodernism, there it is, two pages on the Wall Street Journal. It is just, it's the most remarkable thing. If you get a chance, I was going to copy it for you, and then, you know, maybe I can pull it up electronically and give it to you if you care. It's too hard to, you know, try to get two full pages squeezed down into a bunch of pages. But if you have the chance, pick it up and read it. It rings all, it's everything that we did last year about, you know, people feel alone. Uh, repeatedly, he says, you do this so you don't have to be alone. Or the thing he central, he, the, the central piece of this is this thing he creates called the book of agape, love. So remember how he did this? Um, there's Eden, and then there's chaos of sin, and then that leaves people feeling alone and unloved. And the postmodern equivalent, or the postmodern remedy for being alone and unloved are, you know, justice community, spirituality, and beauty. He does each one of those in there. Takes him two pages. The guy's writing a book. It's excerpted from, excerpted from a book. And I'm thinking, you know, 
I, it, it's a great confirmation that the church actually knows what it's doing. And I think I told you I had a set of lectures. I had lectures last week in North Carolina. I had a set of lectures canceled in California because they sent me up, and then they said, what will you talk about? And I said, how the postmodern world is a great, is open to Christianity and it's going to be great. Then they canceled the lectures. Because I said postmodern. Because, cause see, the thing is, is all the dead Orthodox are afraid of, you know, we mo- they hate the modern world. I mean, they hate it because there's no room for God. And yet, they hate the postmodern world, too. The problem is, if you spend all your time hating things, centuries go by and you don't get anything done. Okay? So the postmodern world, what, basically what this guy is telling you is, we have these great yearnings. We don't want to be alone. We don't want to be unloved. We love beautiful things. We love community, and we've lost it. We love justice in the world. We want a fair world, which we have to slash and translate as mercy. And, but he says, but we can do that without the church. But he, it's irreversible. He has to try to get spirituality in there. So, so basically, he's just making up his own church without the church, which is the great confirmation of what you're doing. And if we could only see that as a church, and we could see the postmodern world as our advantage, I mean, what further need of witnesses? I mean, two pages, you know, in the Wall Street Journal on a Saturday, where everybody, you know, the fourth section is what you're supposed to do to take care of your personal life. It's the personal journal. It's all book reviews and suggestions, and couldn't you get better? And if Oprah came to dinner, what would you do? You know, it's all that kind of stuff. A little joke there. So um, (laughs) she's not really coming to dinner at your house. Because I'm sorry, you're not one of her favorite things. I'm sorry, it's just the way it is. Uh, you know, you're not. I can't help. She's busy. Okay. What am I gonna? Well, come on. Yes. Oh yes. Oh, you thought I was gonna forget to do important things like give this thing around. Put your name on there because I don't want to disappoint. The seminarians are here. Didn't they sing nicely for you today? Um, so they, um, they gave a, um, you know, they sing, so we give them money. It goes way back to Luther. So, um, you know, he was, a, he was a friar. A friar moves. A monk stays put. A friar moves and begs. He, uh, Luther technically was not a monk. People get that wrong. He was a friar. He was a beggar. Um, he didn't always sing, but he did sometimes. So put some money in there, and we'll give it to the guys in all the round collars, okay? It's going to be fun. They need to stop at Wendy's on the way home, and they need gas for the bus. So... Whatever you put in there, um, there you go. You're good. All right. Uh, the Wall Street Journal, Transfiguration, the seminary guys, sign in. Give some money to the guys. All right, we're good to go. And Anna found the snake in the window. We're still trying to, and I spilled coffee on it. So um, we're going to come back to that next week, okay? But it was there in 1967. It wasn't there in 1969. So we're looking. We're, we're, looking, for, we're looking to figure out what happened, Okay. Why the snake came out, I mean, it was, a, it was an upgrade. The snake came out and the host went in, but why, uh, why did that happen? So more on that to follow, okay? Uh, a couple of things. This is just wrapping up other things. Um, we talked about the proximity of the crucifix, the iconic crucifix to the altar, and how we want those to be two things. It's not a new idea. We don't have any new ideas. I mean, occasionally we do, but somebody's really... There's very few new ideas, okay? Here you can see already um, the notion that the blood that came uh, from the side is understood as being in the chalice or being applied to you. You remember at the Passover, it doesn't help you unless the blood is actually applied, unless you not only slaughter, sacrifice, the technical definition for sacrifice is you separate the body and the blood, 
It's when you eat the body, so it touches you, and you put the blood on your doorpost. That's how the angel of death knows not to kill you. It's with the application. And so, as I always say to you, Jesus is not the gospel. Jesus is the application of the gospel to human beings. Jesus is not the gospel. He's the second person of the Trinity. The gospel is when Jesus touches. Jesus speaks. Jesus is applied. That's the gospel. Um, throughout the ages of the church, that's been very clear to people. You could hardly make it clearer than here. You stab Jesus in, in the side, and it splashes down on Chronic, who painted this. Right? So this is um, Chronic the Elder painted this. Standing right next to Luther. It doesn't hit Luther. It actually hits Chronic. You can do that if you're the painter, okay? <laughs> yeah, Luther's a big deal, but I actually painted this, all right? And you can see you get different images. Obviously, you get a resurrected Christ. You get a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You've got stuff going on all over the place here. Um, you've got people running into hell. You've got people running out of hell. You've got Israelites over there in the, in, the, in the wilderness. I mean, what you've got is the whole history of, and you've got you know, dead bones being crushed down here. Um, you got a, uh, you can't really see it, but you got a demon taking a spear to the throat, which is always helpful. Um, <laughs> that's my favorite. I mean, the stained glass. The, did you ever notice what's in the bottom down bottom left? That green, that green alligator demon thing, and the angel is spearing him down so you can run up to heaven. It's it's the greatest. I mean, you're violent people. I mean, it was it was here before I was here. I you know it was you know that's a tough that's a tough little image right there. What's that? It is a dragon, yeah. It's demonic, it's alligator, it's demon. Go ahead. Right here? Thank you very much. Right here, with his finger, and this is traditional, he must increase, I must decrease, that's the guy. Yes, right. <coughs> Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, it's brilliant little stuff. My only point was, um, you know, uh, uh, I mean, there's tons of things to be made. The primary point I put that up there was is that this understanding that the, the proximity, the same blood that was on the cross, and Lutherans have always said this, the same blood that was on the cross um, falls into the chalice. If you want to stretch a little bit, um, you know, the same water that, pierced, that, that poured out of his side fills the font. I mean, there's a long tradition of that. That when Jesus gets pierced, um, when Jesus gets pierced uh, in John's gospel, what happens is he gives the sacraments from him, from himself, of himself, from himself. So he he pours out water and blood. Uh, have always been understood as filling the chalice and filling the font. Okay, you got it. Everybody good? All right, we're just trying to catch up here. I'm without John Crow. Who knows what would come next? Oh, that's not right. Um, that's not it. That's not it. Let's see where we're going here. Somehow I went backwards, but that's okay. Ah, that's what we're going to do. You should. Oh, no, I wanted to give you that first. This is the famous altarpiece that I always call the Isenheim altarpiece, and then Gunther always corrects me, and Gunther's German is better than mine. Uh, Eisenheim, yeah, right, thank you. Uh, it just has a single. But we talked about this a little bit. If you actually get up close to this, and Anna was very helpful. Um, you have a, a finger that's all out of proportion. His finger is like twice as long as it should be, right? And the, the, the words here say, uh, in Latin, I kind of remember, he must increase and I must decrease. 
this is a brutal, brutal, uh, if you get up close to this, um, it's a, just a brutal, Jesus' whole body is pierced with thorns from the beating. And so you, when you get, he just looks like a pincushion. It's actually very difficult to stand near. But you can see sort of the agony, kind of look at his hands. You know, for example, compare those to the hands that we have. We tried to, uh, ours is a starter icon, you know. It's, uh, because if you get, I mean, this is very difficult to look at week after week. Although this is an altar, was an altarpiece originally um, in a convent. It's now uh, in a museum kind of on the German-French border somewhere, as I remember. Uh, but here you have even a more, you have even a more direct, can you see this? Can you see the Lamb of God right here pierced? Look at this, the chalice is sitting right there. Can you see that? I mean, it, well, you can't miss what they're trying to tell you. It's what Lutherans have always said. It's what the church has always said. The same body that flowed from Jesus on the cross flows into the chalice. The same body that was pierced... Did I say body? The same blood that flowed from Jesus on the cross flows into the chalice. The same body that was pierced with nails is given for you to eat. It's the physical, sacramental, tangible touch of Jesus that is your salvation. Why do you get saved? Because Jesus touches you in a merciful, forgiving, healing, uh, healing way. Okay? Uh, so there you go. All right, now I'm going to try to push this again and see if we get to the... What I want to get to is your... That's where I want to go. Happy Transfiguration. So you should have that in front of you. And um, we'll use this as an example of how to read an icon. Now... Um, Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury, has two little books like this. They're actually beautiful little books. Um, if you need, you know, if, you're, if your Lenten discipline is going to be, you know, to read something or think about something, either one of these books, The Dwelling of the Light, it's primarily Jesus icons and ponder these things, uh, primarily Virgin Mary icons, are great little devotional things that actually open up um, just a genius way of thinking about the world. I mean, the stuff that Rowan Williams is on the front of the bulletin today, um, you know, to say about your life, you know, you never really know, um, you can't ever really evaluate your life very well as a human being. And even the people around you can't really see always uh, what your life means. They're oftentimes better than you are. We often just don't see ourselves very well. We're very good at self-deception. We despair easily of our talents, or on the other hand, we um, hypertrophy our talents. We think that we're, we become prideful. You know, we very easily go into despair. We very easily become prideful. Both of those things are because we live under the law. We deceive ourselves so easily. We often don't see very clearly what our life means and why it matters. One of the joys of being in a community is that other people can help you with that, and that's why it's so important for people to grow up in the church and mature in the church it's so important in any congregation that you have wise, old, and by old I don't necessarily mean chronologically, but it often comes that way. You need wise, old folks who have seen it and done it and suffered it and lived through it and prayed and been to the Eucharist and remembered their baptism. You need people around who can help you understand that. That was institutionalized in years past in your pastor. It's one of the things that were lost during the Reformation. You know, some very great things were gained, some things were lost. The notion of pastor as spiritual guide and uh, Zielsorger, care of the soul, uh, the one who cares for the soul, was one of the things that we did lose because we are all just going to do it ourselves. We're all just fine. We'll do it ourselves. Um, 300 years later, we find that we can't do it, and so the Wall Street Journal says you need to find a community to help you do it. 
fascinating. So we didn't see ourselves very well when we lost that particular thing. Uh, we can do better. One of the ways we do better, and you see it institutionalized in things like accountability partners, you know, that evangelicals often have. What else is that but private confession without the private or the confession, you know? It's a guy that you go to and you say, here's what's bothering me and I wish I wouldn't have done it. I mean, it is just, it's like so many other evangelical takes on the sacrament. It's just, it's diminished, it's reduced. So, uh, you know, but you all, it doesn't have to just be the pastor. I mean, even pastors need wise old people to help. That's why traditionally had a bishop and why we often have elders. That's why you have them because everybody needs a pastor, okay? Even pastors need a pastor. So everybody needs somebody because we're not very good at seeing ourselves. Um, now, uh, so just a little bit of an introduction to you know how to read an icon. Um, since this transfiguration, we'll play with this one, and then uh, probably next week we'll uh, play with our own a little bit. I continue to be fascinated by the things that people see in that icon that I haven't seen. But you know that's okay because one is if you're an artist you see things very very differently. Artists just they're different. I mean they just uh, which is I mean it's like a secret code they're sending each other. And then there's the rest of us. That's okay. I mean it's okay. But it's it's amazing what people see. Um, and for the rest of us, you know too, kind of to learn when you learn to love something over the. I mean why are all you folks buying pies and scarves with that? stained glass on it. Because over the years, that thing has helped you grow. I mean, in some sense, that's iconic. It's not classically iconic, but stained glass is of a similar ilk. There's things that visual images can do to you that the spoken word does not. Or some people don't process the spoken word very well. Pastor Nelson in the sermon today. So, um, <laughs> shh, don't say it, don't say it. <clears throat> but there are two kinds of people in the world, people who talk during a movie and people who don't. So I grant him that point, you know. Uh, you know. So visual things, I mean, why is that? I mean, part of the reason you do that is because that image has come to mean something to you. So, um, you know, some of these things I've done with you before, but it's good to kind of see them. And since it was Transfiguration, and this is one of the most classic icons, it's, uh, it's good to actually have this in front of us. So, point number one, if beauty runs with pleasure and brilliance and presence and holiness. See how it's so important, this is a day of presence. Jesus is here. The transfiguration is the great confirmation that God is here in the flesh. You know, and you, get to, you see the face of God and you can't see the face of God and then you can see the face of God. What does that mean? It means the two natures, one person. God himself has returned to his creation. And despite what happens in the next 46 days, plus four, so Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, plus three, it'll be 49 days. Despite what happens in the next 49 days, 48 days, despite what happens, remember this day. Because this is the day that tells you whatever happens in the next 49 days, and the days that are going to be particularly difficult for you are the triduum days, you know, 45, 46, 47. Those are going to be difficult days. Betrayal, death, despair, road to Emmaus, we thought this was the guy, he's not the guy. Right? So you remember this day, and you carry this day with you, you carry this day with you to assure you that when days are dark, Christ is still the light of the world. That's what beautiful things do. And iconic images are so compelling, so beautiful, that they stay with you 
even in the depth of despair. That's what this is meant to do. All right, so beauty runs with pleasure and brilliance and presence and holiness and temple and sacrifice. With physicality, with sight, with sound, with touch, with smell. With redemption and reconciliation and protection. With consolation and care and joy in life itself. So remember Thomas Aquinas who said, God is beauty. Genius little thing. Uh, and Dostoevsky who will come to you soon and say, beauty will save the world. Beauty will save the world. God is beauty. And also the notion of nickels, and I've given you this before, but it's terribly important that you understand that beauty isn't just to absorb, but also to be reflected. So a faith based on divine incarnation will eventually find expression in the realm of the visible, right? Then we consider uh, the God we knew best. And on on Thanksgiving, on transfiguration, (coughs) as we just heard, the text that always comes up is... You see God in the face of Christ. You see God in the face of Christ. If you see Christ's face, you've seen God. Okay? So it's terribly important to ask what it is that you see. So um, try this. And we won't, you know, we don't really need to look up all of these because you've, you've known them before, but we just read one, that Christ is the icon. And it's terribly important for you to know that that's the Greek word. You know, this is not something we're just making up. Icon is actually more literal than what we say, image or picture. You know, Christ is the icon, the representation, the print, the face. Christ is the icon, the visible, tangible, physical image of the invisible, beautiful God. If you want to see, if you want to see God, look into the face of Christ. Be careful, because occasionally it burns very brightly. You know, transfiguration. Be careful. You know, when you do it, be careful. There's a reason that, you know, the tabernacle was dark, and that the high priest went in on the Day of Atonement by touch and not by sight. Because you've got to be very, very careful to lift your eyes to God. But in the face of Christ, we see the Father, we know the Father, and most of all, you know that you're accepted and comforted and received. They could have been destroyed, Peter and James and John, but they are not destroyed. And it is very interesting that Peter and James and John are the ones with Jesus in Gethsemane, and across the course of what he suffers. You know, John sneaks in, Peter denies. James is always on the fringe. There's a reason they get to see the transfiguration. They get closest and highest on the mountain, and they get closest and highest, um, you know, in Monday, Thursday, into Thanksgiving, except then for St. John and the Blessed Virgin Mary. So it's going to be a rigorous next couple of weeks, we read the Transfiguration. That helps. Uh, we read that for today. So you've got that in your um, bit. And I gave you William's book. And so then, point number five. Any artist needs to be extraordinarily careful. In fact, I think I've told you, um, one of the guys on my doctoral committee who was a reform guy when I was going to Germany, he said, you know, go, uh, he said, go to this particular church, look up in the canopy above the pulpit, and in the carving you'll see the face of God the Father. He said, it breaks the very first commandment. It was a Lutheran church. It was a little bit of a poke under the notion that you don't make a graven image. Okay, point taken, although he was wrong, but point taken, and I still graduated, so uh, it was okay, you know. But um, you do have to be very careful. Why? With any artwork, and this is true with architecture, with icons, with anything you conceive, um, there's always a chance that the image will reduce God. So any image that we make, short of the very flesh and blood of Jesus himself, born of the Virgin Mother, 
anything else has the risk of diminishing God. Um, you know, and the image stays with you. Uh, do you know that image that my grandma had on her wall, the one that's kind of that coppery toned Jesus with the flowy hair? Do you know that image? Jesus High School graduation photo, you've all seen it? <laughs> stays with you, doesn't it? It stays with you. You all know what I'm talking about. I'm not even showing it to you. You all know what I'm talking about. You get that image in your head, and you, you can't get it out. So there's always a chance that you're always going to make Jesus just a little less than, than what he really is. But we're also willing to take the risk. Right? We're willing to t- I mean, so there were, there were folks occasionally who pop up called iconoclasts. They've done great damage in the course of the church. In fact, there was, had to be a church council to sort of um, sort them out. But they appeared um, in the early church, and then they appeared again during the Reformation, where they basically broke in to churches, broke everything, and painted everything. So you basically, and that actually in the most, that shows itself in the tradition in the American church, in American churches where everything you walk in is just a white room, where there's no representations. That's sort of the hint, that's, the, that's still the, you know, the ripples out from the iconoclastic controversies. They've come up a couple of different times in the church. You know, you can learn something from everybody. You know, you have to be very careful when you have images. But on the other hand, um, there are images all over the place. Read the description of the temple in the Old Testament. So the point is you can never, the point isn't that you can never have an image or a, gra- a carved image or a painted image. The point is if you confuse the creation with the creator, or if you will, if you confuse your work with his work, right? So as a reminder, as an aid, as an help, as an expression, as beauty, as consolation, as light, as joy, I mean, just kind of think about the morning. I mean, just, just think about all the things that were going on in there. There was something for every piece of you. You know, there's something for your eyes and something for your nose. There was tremendous stuff for your ears. The power of power horns were back. The only of you of a certain generation actually understand the Tower of Power Horns, but just go with it, and we'll have my high school class reunion another day. All right? So, um, you know, it was not the horn. I mean, just, it just was, there was something. Jonathan got to play his harpsichord. Life is good. When Jonathan gets to play the harpsichord, the world is at peace, right? <laughs> so great job getting the harpsichord. Yes, David? Perfect. Hold on, to your, hold on to your hat. That's exactly where we want to go, so that was very helpful. So the artwork, um, one of the places I'll say, the artwork is not a representation. Did you watch Ink Masters? Have you been watching Ink Masters? Did you see the American Challenge? You people, do none of you have tattoos? You're not saying? See, one of the problems with the American Challenge is nobody gave, like, the direct, like, 100-year-old tattoo. None of you saw this? What do you do with your spare time? You help the poor? What do you do? Because I'm home watching Ink Masters. All right, well, so, so, oh boy, how do I explain this to you, you know? Sometimes images are just meant as representations. Sometimes images, because we're a bit um, self-centered, sometimes we can take an image as a mirror. So that image is all about me. That's been popular for a couple hundred years. But try this. This image is meant as a window. So you look through the image and you see God. Yeah, the other thing is, is if this was a little better color, and I don't know how good your color thing is, this is actually very deep blue in the original and deep gold, which are sort of the, the colors of infinity, right? You have, this, you have this deep sort of, it's like the ocean when you peer into it, and then you can only see so far and it disappears. Or when you stand on the shore and it gets progressively 
So that basically what you're meant to see there is that Jesus is emerging from eternity, from forever. See? Which is exactly what you're talking about. But you're actually supposed to look through him back into, all the way back to Eden, and then back beyond that. So hold on, we're going to get there, okay? It's very well done. Um, You have to be careful about your images because there's always a chance that you think um, you're bigger and better than the image. And so you have this great part in Isaiah, for example, where he makes fun of people who carve idols, where he says, you know what your problem is? Is You take a log and you cut it in half, make a god out of half of it, and you burn the other half in the fire to keep you warm. He's like, really? You really, I mean, you can't tell the difference between... You just burned half of it, and the other half becomes your God? What are you, crazy people? What are you, you know? So the problem is, is that um, uh, rather than having an image um, help us see God, it helps us see ourselves. Nevertheless, um, the church has always, almost always been willing to take that risk. Uh, and I'm at point six now. Given that... You know, how can you show Jesus to be more than a man? How can you show him to be human and divine? How can you show Jesus to be two natures in one person? How can, you, how can he be son of God the Father and son of Mary? How can that happen? So, the, I mean, this is the kind of thing where you, this quote at the bottom, uh, Rowan Williams, you know, I know him a little bit because he, he, um, he was my tutor at Cambridge before he was famous-ish. He was pretty famous already. I mean, he had already done a lifetime of stuff when I knew him. He was um, the dean of Clare College, which is one of the places where they have genius music. And uh, he married the daughter of a bishop, which was a sly political move. That's what people said about him. He'll at least be a bishop, they said. Um, he, was, he wrote his um, doctoral dissertation, I think, in the 70s. And he wrote it on beauty when nobody cared about beauty. So what's happened to him is he's kind of ascended. And he writes poetry, and he's um, kind of politically left-leaning, although he's a very ironic guy. He can, he can get a lot of people. And frankly, if you want to be head of the Anglican Church in the world right now, God bless you. It's all yours, you know. It makes the Missouri Senate look like pikers. So, um, you know, he's got a control. And in fact, he's, he's still a young guy. In fact, he's just entering his 60s, and he's announced that he's going to retire, which kind of shocked people, because he probably could go another decade or so. But um, one wonders, you know, the kind of strain that that sort of spiritual puts on people. So um, in any case, here's a guy who did what he thought was important, um, did very well, and then suddenly what he thought was important, everybody woke up and decided it was important as well. And so he becomes suddenly you know, the, the, the resident expert on all this stuff. And he said, but when you write stuff like this, so at the end of this page, the bottom of this page, if we paint a picture of Jesus, we're not trying to show a humanity apart from the divine life. But a humanity soaked through with the divine life. That is a great way to talk about Jesus. We're trying to show a humanity that is soaked through. I mean, soaked is a great image because what, when your Christology goes bad is when the parts come Apart when they separate. It's great heresy. Is when the when the divine and human get pulled apart. But soaked is a great image. If you have a wet piece of cloth, there's no way that you can even squeeze it as hard as you want. You can't unsoak it. This is, it's genius. The workings of God, the energy of God, to use a favorite term of the Eastern theologians. And actually, that would be a term that would help us a little bit more if we thought about the Holy Spirit. 
You know, we, we say from memory, even as he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies. We say that uh, with our small catechism, but we neglect, enlightens has a double thing. Enlightens means illumines, that is, he shows you the way, shows you himself, shows you yourself, shows you the way forward. Light is, you know, light in darkness. And, and Lutherans, we get pretty good at that. But the other thing is, light is an energy. It energizes you. You know, in the wintertime, if the sun doesn't shine, you all get crazy. You got to go to Florida, right? You're sitting under a lamp. You know, it energizes you. That should, that's a great way to talk about the Holy Spirit. He, he energizes you for what you'd be doing. So, um, the workings of God, the energy of God, to use a favorite word of the Eastern theologians, are all the time acting on and in the human nature of Jesus. We don't depict just a slice of history when we depict Jesus. We show a life radiating with the light and force of God. So you just kind of look at that. Look what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, this is the light and force of God. How do you know it's the light of God? What do you see? The white. Yeah, he's white. Everybody el everything else is dark. He's light. What else? What do, you, what do you see light? Where else can you see light? Sorry? Yeah, the, there's the burst behind him. So you get this red and gold burst behind him. What else do you see? Where else do you see light? Chuck? Here, yeah, but that's just all light. He's making the stone shine. And look, you can see it down here too, right? Look at that. He's gold because he has the most reflection. You know, it's like the light hits him and transforms him. Okay? And, and also, you know, um, the nimbus, his nimbus has more, if you look at it, it has more gold. His, his just, he's just got the bigger, better nimbus, the bigger, better halo, right? And the other guys only have halos because they're standing by him. I mean, they're saints, but all light is never natural. It's gifted to us. So, um, and these guys aren't quite there yet. <laughs> Peter, James, and John, they're still trying to figure it out. But Moses, um, you know, he's got it. And, and, Eli and, and, and Elijah, they've, they've had dinner before. So it's all okay, right? <laughs> They've been at the same table. How can that be? I really do love you. I mean, you're actually a very fine, fine young man. And the music was genius this morning. Thank you very much. I mean, it was really quite something. It is, it is a pleasure to work with you. And, um, and thanks for arranging for the guys to come from the seminary, too. That's just couldn't do better. So... Um, and this means that if we know what we're doing when we represent Jesus, so if we know what we're doing, if we approach the whole matter in prayer and adoration, the image that is made becomes in turn something that in its own way radiates light and force. Okay, so we'll go as far as that. Here's the thing, what I'd love for you to do is um, take the front page of your bulletin, uh, just tear it off and take it home and save it for next week. But I mean, if I, you know, when I grow up and be a big boy someday, you know, I want to write one page like this. I mean, that is just, uh, you know, the front, um, it's from the same book, and it is, that is written from the depth of a guy who has done everything you can do, he's done everything you can do in the world, uh, in the world of the church. I mean, I don't know if you, I don't know if you've ever seen him, but do you remember that, you know, they, about a year ago, the Pope went to England, and there's this very famous picture where um, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Pope are sitting across from each other. Did you, did you see this picture? 
I mean, you think to yourself, and then everybody left and they talked, and you think to yourself, the firepower in that room. I mean, pretty much people have decided now that Benedict is the brightest pope, just raw intelligence, brightest pope that ever lived. Gregory the fifth, Gregory the Great, was always, you know, kind of the guy. He was always the brightest guy. There's kind of consensus now that um, Benedict probably is brighter, which is, that's, a, that's going some. You're basically saying that's the brightest guy in the last 2,000 years. I mean, the Archbishop of Canterbury is no slouch. I mean, you would have just liked to been in the room and watched what happened. Because there is a kindness that comes out of people who, when people are beyond the fact that they have to prove to you that they're smart, in fact, when they get to another level, you know, the, the times I've seen this, it is a remarkable, remarkable thing to watch. It's a thing where things are simple, then most of our life is lived in difficulty, and then there's another level where things are simple again. And that's a very, very joyful place. Um, the only simplicity to be trusted is the simplicity on the far side of complexity. Uh, and that's a very... Uh, you know, that's a, that's a very nice place to be. So anyway, these, if you need a book to read for, um, if you're not reading the other book, if you need a book to read, these are good ones. We got to go because we got guests and we want to be on time for them. We love you. Um, hold on. We'll see you next week. Cheers. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.